How does a person learn to fear the Lord? Do you really fear the Lord? How do you learn to do it? Because both Christians and unbelievers need to learn to fear the Lord. To the degree that we fear the Lord, we will have his blessing, and to the degree that we do not fear the Lord, we will experience his judgments. That's pretty powerful. To the same degree that you fear the Lord, you'll receive his blessings, and to the degree you don't fear the Lord, you'll receive his judgments. Therefore, Scripture states that there are certain things we can do to cause us to learn the fear of the Lord. One, learn the words which God uses to describe the fear which we should have for Him. The first one is, ever been terrified? Terror describes the most extreme degree of fear. It is totally disabling to the one who experiences it, leaving that person with neither physical strength nor mental ability. They are totally debilitated when they're terrorized. The root word for terror in the Hebrew language is getah. It means to prostrate by confusion and fear. The Greek root, phobos, which means to terrify with exceeding alarm. This terror is precisely the experience which the Apostle John had when he looked upon the reality of God. Revelation 1, verses 12 through 17. said, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. When he saw the, the reality of God's presence, he literally became as a dead man and fell on his face. The judgments are called of God are called terrors in the Scripture, David declared. Psalm 88, 16. The fierce wrath goeth over me, thy terrors have cut me off. There's no doubt that God's judgments upon sin do bring terror to those who experience them. These judgments should be spoken of and described especially among God's people so that even the thought of sin would strike terror in every heart. Like I told you concerning Joseph in Genesis, the 39th chapter. I mean, there was no preacher there. There was no priest there. There was no rabbi there. He was all by himself in a foreign country. No one knew him. His family was gone. He wasn't under their peer pressure. But he said, I cannot do this when Potiphar's wife came and tried to seduce him. I cannot do this before my God. He, he had a terror of the judgment of the Lord falling on him. This concept lies behind the warnings the Apostle Paul gave to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in the body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, Paul said. Now, the second word is fright. The Greek word for fright is thambeo, which literally means to shrink or shiver with fear. It's a sudden, violent fear caused by the appearance of danger and is distinguished from fear and dread by its sudden invasion and temporary existence. When Jesus stilled the storm, his disciples experienced fright. In Mark 4.41, Mark 4.41, And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? How does fright relate to the fear of God? Fright often comes when we encounter a power that is far bigger than we, in which we do not understand. This is consistently demonstrated in Scripture as people witness Christ's supernatural power. When Jesus cured the demoniac, the people feared. Look in Luke 8.37. Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear. They were frightened because he had cast out all these this legion of demons and they went into the hog of the swine. The swine ran off the hillside and fell into the lake and drowned. It really scared them. When Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, they experienced fright. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And that's in Luke 24, 36 and 37. Let me ask you something. What would you do if you were sitting here right now as I was teaching and an angel appeared right here in front of you, seven foot or eight foot tall, started looking at you? I think some of those pews would begin to rattle a little bit. I don't know about you, but it would bring fright. Time and time again, the scriptures, when angels appeared, people would fall flat on their faces. 
I sometimes wish it would happen. But let me tell you something. It's more important that we fear the Lord without it happening. We shouldn't have to see him. We should just understand who he is. The next word, dismay. Whereas terror and fright immediately affect the physical strength, dismay removes the mental ability of a person. Removes the mental ability. You know anybody like that? <laughs> you got to know some people that goes around dismayed all their lives? All right. The Hebrew word which is translated dismay describes a condition of being drained of confidence and courage to the point where a person literally faints. Drained of confidence and courage to the point where a person literally faints. Our English word for dismay probably came from the Teutonic des, which is a negative, and megan, which means to be strong or able. Thus, to dismay means to remove the strength or firmness of mind which constitutes courage, the opposite of courage. Faced with the presence of God's power, majesty, and splendor, a person would be dismayed. When God appeared to Daniel in a vision, Daniel testified that there remained no strength in him, and he was prostrate before the Lord. Totally dismayed him. In Daniel 10, 8 through 11, Daniel said, Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground, and behold, an hand touched me, which set me up upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I, was, I stood trembling. How does dismay relate to the fear of the Lord? There's a great tendency among God's people to be dismayed at the strength of the wicked. Many of you have heard people say, man, I think it's just too late. We've just, I mean, we're going to get inundated. It's all over with right now. Talk to someone today, I think it was, or maybe yesterday, who said, you know, the TV ministries are through. I mean, the IRS is going to come in now with a fine-tooth comb. They're going to get wiped out. And have you heard that this group, they've lost a third of their giving? Have you, the other ones are down millions of dollars. The other, It's just all over with. You know, uh, we're becoming dismayed at, at the wicked, what the wicked has done. Thus the scripture gives the command repeatedly, Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Joshua 1, 9. The word says to the believers, no matter what the circumstances are and surroundings are, be not dismayed. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee. And when we see the judgments of God on the children of disobedience, we should be dismayed and have no strength like Daniel. However, when we hear the voice of God giving reassurance and direction, we should be revived. And then in Daniel 10 again, verses 18 and 19, it says, Then there came again and touched me, one, of, one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me, and said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Astonishment relates to the inability to speak in the face of an awesome and overwhelming situation. The Greek word for astonish is thambeo, meaning to stupefy. Our English word comes from the French estoner. This word is derived from the Latin ex meaning out and tonnerre meaning to thunder. It literally means to be thunderstruck, to be struck dumb. One who is truly astonished is stunned with sudden fear, wonder, and amazement. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, he was astonished at the appearance of Christ and his message to him. Acts 9, verses 5 and 6. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And, and, he, and the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Talking about astonishment. How does astonishment relate to the fearing God? In the presence of the omnipotent, all-powerful, and omniscient, all-knowing God, we should hold our tongues in astonishment. God advises us in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I read somewhere years ago that that isn't what it says in the Hebrew. It says, shut up, I'm God. That's a little stronger, isn't it? Not be still, know that I'm God. Shut up. I am God. You better know it. 
We are further warned in Ecclesiastes to hold our tongue when we go into the presence of God and to be more ready to hear than to speak. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and now upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. You know most prayers in the Bible are not long. Almost every prayer in the Bible is a short prayer. And yet there are some people who think that they are going to be heard by their much speaking. That's what Jesus said concerning the Pharisees. They think they're going to be heard by their much speaking. They just say the things over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, thinking that if they say it enough times, God's going to hear them. But the Scripture says, don't say too much when you're in the presence of God. You tell Him what, what you have on your mind and get it over with. And know that He hears you and then go on. Believe that He's heard you. You know, until you begin to look through these things, it, it seems impossible that there's all these different aspects of the Scripture coming in from every direction saying we're to fear the Lord, we're to dread the Lord, we're to be terrorized by the thought of God's power and presence, to, to be frightened, to be dismayed, to be astonished at His presence. And again, it doesn't mean there are people supposed to be going around ready to have a nervous breakdown. But we come, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding, the Scripture says. Why? We recognize who He is and all of His power and all of His might. And like John, the Beloved, we would fall down prostrate with our faces to the ground. And then He speaks to us and says, Now be strengthened because I love you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He gives it. I've given you all power and all authority. Now go. But you wouldn't even think of disobeying Him. That's what He's talking about here. You don't go around paranoid that he's going to smash you like a bug every time you breathe wrong, but you recognize that he is God, and, and because of his power and authority, all these attitudes should be there, balanced out by the fact that he says, I love you, and you're my child, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. You go into all the world, and those that reject you reject me, and those that reject me reject him that sent me. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, you have all power and all authority. Go with it now. And in the going, when you get out there, you don't become influenced by the world like God said to his prophet Jeremiah. If you look at their faces, you get influenced by what they think and what they say. I'll set you aside and I'll get me another spokesman. Why? Because the fear of man is a snare. The fear of the Lord is important. You've got to fear the Lord more than anyone else. So walk before the Lord. Let me tell you something. The fear of your wife or the fear of your husband or the fear of your children or the fear of your parents above the fear of the Lord is a snare. You've got to fear the Lord above everything else. Everything else is secondary. And if we'll do this, and through that fear of the Lord, we come into total obedience before Him, nothing to be afraid about. Perfect love casts out all fear. And we're to have a love relationship with Him. We're going to be going on to two other words, and the first one is trembling. Let me tell you, very seldom do you see anyone trembling before the Lord as they have in the past. Some of you that are close to my age will remember times when during revival meetings, people literally shook from head to foot under conviction of the Holy Spirit. Very seldom do you see that anymore, but I believe that that is involved in many people coming to a genuine experience of repentance before the Lord. When they really begin to realize what they have done before God and it's the consequences that could come from it. Let me read to you the, the definition of trembling. It is the physical result of overpowering fear. Have you ever had something happen to you where something suddenly happened and all of a sudden you're just shaking from head to foot? I have. I remember one time when a fellow about four years older than I, three or four years older at least, and bigger than I was, came into a restaurant I was eating and he said, when you get outside, Webb, I'm going to be there to meet you and you better get ready because I'm going to clean your plow. I never tasted such flat french fries in my life. I never knew that a milkshake could be gritty. I never knew that a person could sit in a nice, comfortable restaurant and shake from head to foot. I was trembling. I mean, I had an experience there. When I got outside, I whipped him. I didn't know I could, but I found out I could. But boy, when he said that to me, I trembled. I, I <laughs> And there are times when we need to be just as fearful of what God says in His Word when we think about disobeying His commandments. It says the English word comes from the Latin tremo, T-R-E-M-O, meaning to shake involuntarily or to quiver and shake. What word do we get in English from tremo? Trembling. It comes from the Latin word. 
All right. A graphic illustration of trembling occurred in the life of Belshazzar in Daniel, the fifth chapter, Daniel 5, verses 5 through 9. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another and his lords were astonished. Another example of trembling and trepidation is given in the account of the guarding of the tomb of Christ. Now you remember there in Daniel, the reason this happened was Belshazzar called for the golden cups that had come from the temple in Israel in Jerusalem and they were drinking and having a drunken orgy upstairs with all of his, his great men. And they brought all these golden goblets uh, from, that had come from the temple and started drinking wine and having a drunken party with them. And God said, that's the last step. And that hand appeared on the wall and wrote, which means thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Daniel came and translated it for him, you remember. And he said, tonight your kingdom is taken from you. And that night the Medes and the Persians came in. What they did, they went upstream and, and uh, blocked the river that was flowing through the capital of the Assyrians. And when the waters receded, they went down into the bottom of the river. The bed of the river walked under the wall and came up into the city and attacked it. They thought it was totally impregnable. But they found that they, could, they, didn't, they didn't block it. They diverted the channel of the river around the city, took it that night. And when that hand came up, can you imagine what, what we would feel if suddenly a big hand appeared and started writing on the wall up there? That's the type of trembling. Uh, Belshazzar had no fear of God whatsoever. Suddenly had a fear of God in his heart when he saw that writing. He realized, I mean, he thought he was powerful, but what do you do with a hand, disconnected hand, writing on a wall? You remember when, when the uh, guards were guarding the tomb? In uh, Matthew, the 28th chapter, verses 3 and 4, it says, His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow, speaking of the angel. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. Began to shake all over and became as dead men. Now the next word, that's trembling. That's another form of fear. And the next one is dread. The word dread expresses more than fear, but less than terror and fright. It refers to an intense uneasiness or alarm excited by expected pain, loss, or other harm. Some of you boys and girls that have been told by your daddy when you get home, you're going to have a spanking. You experienced dread, didn't you? You pulled every trick in the book you possibly could to get daddy to forget about it. But that dread was always there. I'll bet he didn't forget about it. Or the teacher says, I want you to go to the principal's office. I've already talked to him, and you're to go to the principal's office. When they said that to me when I was a kid, I mean, there was dread. Nowadays, there's not much dread, but that back in those days, there was dread. I still remember that big board. Also, unlike the word terror, dread is less sudden and more sustained. It's agonizing. You've known of people that have pulled a trick on someone else, and they said, just wait, just wait. And the people become paranoid. I mean, they're always looking around. He's going to do it tonight. No, he's going to do it tomorrow. He's going to get even with me to... And just the agony, the extending of that thing. When's it going to hit, you know? It's, it's like the fellow that's upstairs getting ready for bed and he drops his first shoe on the floor. You're laying there trying to go to sleep. And you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait for that second shoe to hit the floor so you can go to sleep. Because you don't want to get halfway asleep and have that thing hit again. And seriously, you dread that second shoe. And then you find out he set it on his bedstand just to keep you in agony. That's dread, see? Daniel ascribed the quality of dread to God in his prayer in Daniel 9, 4. Daniel 9, 4 says, And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Now, you remember in the Old Testament, God said to the children of Israel, If you will keep my commandments, then all these blessings will be yours. But if you don't keep my commandments, then all these curses will be yours. And the prophets would go back and read the commandments of God, and they'd say, dear God, we're, we're judged. Judgment's coming on us. And they'd go out and try to warn the people. You need to dread God's judgment, because he said it's going to come. And the few that knew God and understood God's ways and his righteousness and his justice, they dreaded what was coming on their nation, because they knew if God said it, it was going to happen. 
Isaiah had a dread of his sinful condition when he went into the temple. It said, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Then said, woe is me. Then said, I woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And may I just emphasize this fact. You show me anyone who has spent time in meditating in the Word and praying and seeking God's face earnestly, even fasting and praying, and I'll show you somebody that will begin to recognize the holiness and the righteousness and the justice of God. And they'll begin to dread breaking his law. They'll begin to hate the thought of what will happen when they break God's laws. How does dread relate to the fear of the Lord? We should have an awe at the power and authority of God that sinning against him produces a fearful dread of sure judgment. On the other hand, the dread of God should not make us afraid if we're justified by Christ. That sounds like a double standard, doesn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And yet the Word of God does say, if we have committed sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. And He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. God will look at the motivation. When we do not willfully I don't want to use the word willfully, but where we figure, well, I can get away with it if I got to ask God for get where it's presumptuous. When we commit presumptuous sins, judgment will come. Some form of judgment will come. And we just say, oh, I couldn't care less. I'm going to do it. But if we stumble and fall into sin, say, dear God, will you please forgive me? That was sin, and I recognize it for sin. Will you please forgive me? I believe the blood of Christ washes that away because God knows that we're weak. God knows our flesh. But it's when somebody presumptuously says, I'll get away with this, I'll just manipulate God, I'll do it, and then I'll go and ask him for forgiveness, I believe then you, you better begin to experience the dread of the Lord. In Job 13, 23, Job stated of God, As for himself, he acknowledged his sin. How many are mine iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. He says, Shall not his excellency make you afraid? Job 13, 18. However, he also said, I know that I shall be justified. Job 13, 21. Therefore he prayed, let not thy dread make me afraid. Even though he had failed God, he had sinned against God, he knew that he dreaded God, but he said, don't let that dread make me afraid. Because God will forgive. God will justify. God will correct that situation in my life. He's trying to balance something here between two things. Presumption and hopelessness. Presumption and hopelessness. Where a person is presuming I can do it and then ask God to forgive me and forgive me. That's presumptuous sin. The other one is to where if I sin, ah, God's going to smash me like a, but there's no hope, I might as well go on down. No, there's a balance between those two. We're not to be presumptuous. Neither do we forget the mercy and the goodness of God. If Jesus said to Peter, you forgive 70 times 7, if someone says they're sorry, you forgive them 70 times 7 a day, how many more times will God forgive those who come to him genuinely sorry for their sins? But you know, we really need to develop the dread of the Lord in the heart, the fear of the Lord in the heart, because with it is riches and honor and life. Bill brings out a second point here, and that is the how, considering how small we are in comparison to other things which God has made how insignificant we are in, in contrast to all of his, of his creation. They have just developed these larger, more powerful telescopes, thinking now we'll find the outer edge of, of creation. What are they finding? Billions more. <laughs> they say, I don't believe this. There's got to be an edge out there somewhere. Never, the more they look out, the further they go, the more they see. They just can't comprehend that principle. And, and David said in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Have you ever thought about that? I, I still remember how I was impressed when I walked down, first of all, in St. Paul, Minnesota. When I left Fremont, Nebraska, went to St. Paul, Minnesota. I mean, that was a big city. Minneapolis and St. Paul, I had to get on a streetcar to get places. In my hometown, you could walk anywhere. And I thought, God... How do you even know I'm here? How can, how can you even think about me? I am so insignificant. In Minneapolis and St. Paul, if you really want to feel, have a, a feeling of insignificance, go to Hong Kong and Kowloon. 
It's incredible. Just oceans of people. Oceans and oceans of people. Then you get on this bus and the driver lays on his horn and drives for three hours out into the country and you get off into the next, in the streets of another town and it's just ocean waves of humanity. And I've stopped at times. I think, Lord, how merciful, how wonderful you were to tell me about yourself. Let me know about yourself. Can you think of people around you when you were younger had, that God could have told that he didn't? Didn't reveal himself to them? He revealed himself to you? And I think, God, what have you got in store for me? What do you want me to do? How can I, how can I give back to you what you have offered to me? They're so small. He shows a picture in here of a big volcano that erupted out in Washington State. Shows a picture way away from it, and you can see the smoke plume going up and under it. He says, just how big would the tallest man in the world appear if he were standing on the rim of that volcano? He couldn't even see him. He'd be less than a speck on the edge of the volcano from where that picture was taken. And he's trying to get a little perspective here as to just how small and insignificant we are outside of our relationship with Jesus Christ. David often expressed his awe of God by meditating on the power of God's creation. Psalm 29, verses 1, 3, 5, 8, and 9 of Psalm 29. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. The God of glory thundereth. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. And in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory. When God gave his law to the nation of Israel, he first revealed his mighty power through nature so the people could learn to fear him. And it says in the Old Testament concerning this, in Exodus, the 20th chapter, verses 18 and 20, And all the people saw the thunderings and lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. You see, the fear of the Lord keeps a person from sin. He said, In case you think that there isn't a God, just take another look and look at it for a long time and just burn that into your mind. So you'll know that there is a God who lives and a God who knows all things. So keep the sin out of your life. Paul affirms the fact that God shows his mighty power through nature in Romans 1, 19 and 20, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God says that he has placed within every individual's heart. And I say this now for some people that wonder why people go to the mission field. Every man on the face of the earth, God placed in his heart an awareness that there is a God. That's why the scripture says the insane man has said there is no God. And the reason the insane man has to say that is because he has somewhere along the line morally fallen into some deep sin that he either enjoyed or did not want to get rid of, and he could not live with that knowledge of God in his life in order to justify or to be able to live with himself, he had to deny the existence of God. But God says it's in every one of their hearts. God placed it there so that when you even look out at creation, I've had more people say, how can people say there's no God? Fear of the Lord. It's impossible for us to have a good enough dose of it because the more of it that we have, the more we can expect riches, honor, and life. A lot of people want riches, a lot of people want honor, a lot of people want life, but they don't want to fear the Lord. But God says that's a prerequisite. You want to be a nurse? You've got to go through some hard teaching. You want to be a, a, a school teacher? You've got to go through a lot of college classes. You want to have riches, honor, and life in a genuine sense of the word and God's description definition of it? and develop the fear of the Lord in your heart. You have to develop it. And the more you develop it, the stronger it becomes in your life, the more it will influence the way you walk and talk before the Lord every day, the more of an influence it will have on your daily walk and talk with others around about you, and God will be able to honor you, even as he did Daniel, because Daniel had a fear of the Lord. God protected him and honored him and lifted him up and made him be what we know him to be today, in his day. In Deuteronomy, let's notice a few 
choice statements in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. I believe the first one is in the fourth chapter. It's Deuteronomy 4. We'll go right through Deuteronomy to show you that this is not some little side issue that's picked out and you know stuck up in the air and said, here, this is just an unusual thing. But all the way through the Word of God, it talks about the principle of fearing the Lord. Let me say again, the reason I'm emphasizing this, and I have been so impressed with this study, is because this is one of the greatest problems in the church today. There is no fear of God before the eyes of many people. God is just a sweet old granddaddy up there rocking in the chair saying, children, you just go and have a lot of fun one of these days. I'll catch you out of all this. Consequently, when you start telling them what God's universal non-optional principles are, they say, that can't be right because God wouldn't do that. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to have a good time. God wants me to have fun. Deuteronomy 4.10 Especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to what? Hear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. Not only should they fear the Lord, but they should teach their children to fear the Lord. God was speaking to the children of Israel there, and having Moses exhort them to learn to fear the Lord. Turn to chapter 6, verse 24. 6, 24. Talking about the Lord's statutes, and it's interesting, verse 23 says, And he brought us out from Egypt, or thence, that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. God brings us out of the world to bring us into something. That's why he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt to bring them into the land of promise, but only two of them made it because they were not willing to keep the non-optional principles of God. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And again, the thing we need to cause our children to understand is God's principles are for our good. I've actually had people say to me, well, your God is a deadhead. Your God is a God that just doesn't want anyone to have a good time and have fun. I mean, he is a real party pooper. Well, you know, as you begin to tell your children today, you know, God said that you should flee fornication. God said you should not be involved in any forms of unnatural sexual relationships whatsoever. God's word says that you should be pure in all your ways. And he's not saying that to, to, to uh, take you from, away from being able to have an enjoyable time. He's doing it to protect you. But God says, don't do those things because I love you so much I want to protect you. And it says there, for our good always. Whenever God says something to you, boys and girls, in the word of God, remember, it isn't to keep you from being able to enjoy life. It's that you might enjoy it more. He's trying to protect you from the things that can come from disobeying his principles. In the 8th chapter and the 6th verse, Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and what? Keep his commandments, walk in his ways, and fear him. Three things. In the 31st chapter, 31st chapter, verses 12 and 13, Gather the people together, men and women and children, and thy stranger that is within thy gates, that they may hear and that they may learn. And what? Hear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of this law, and that their children, which have not known anything, may hear and learn. To what? Hear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land whither you go over Jordan to possess it. You know, again, let me just sidetrack here and, and share with you again that your children need to fear, your children need to fear that if they disobey you every time that there will be a judgment because of it. Let me say that again. Whenever you and I establish a principle in our home, we explain a principle to our children and say, now I want you to understand that that is a principle, that is a rule in this home, that you do not do this. If you do, there will be punishment coming. Now, whenever my children disobeyed, willfully, knowingly, decided to disobey me, fear came into their heart. Do you know why fear came into their heart? Because they knew I would never lie to them. Why would I not lie to them? Because I wanted them to begin to understand the principle of obeying God and having the fear of the Lord in their heart. Because I would always say to them, you know, God won't lie to you, and I'm his child. I don't dare lie to you, or he'll judge me. He'll punish me if I lie to you. 
So if I tell you that this is a, something you do not do because God's word says that that's disobedience, and I tell you if you do it, I'll have to punish you, I have to punish you in order to be pleasing to my Father in heaven. So that you'll know in the days ahead when you grow up and you read God's word and it says don't do this, if you willfully do it, you can expect that as a heavenly father, you will be punished for it. And they begin to have a very healthy fear of the Lord in their heart. But they learn it through the principles that they learn in the home. And that's why I keep saying, parents, don't say you're going to do something and then don't do it because you're not manifesting the nature of God. You're lying to your children. They come to the place where they think, well, he doesn't mean it yet. She doesn't mean it yet. She will mean it after about the fourth time. When she quits saying Joe and she says, Joseph Alvin. Then you say, oh, okay, now you're getting serious. But they're learning a principle that later on when God says something to them, they'll say, later, Lord, I'm busy right now. See what I'm saying? That's the way they learn the fear of the Lord, that they know that when God says something, God means exactly what he says. And once he says it, he won't go back on it. They learn that by you and me operating by that principle in our home. Now, I've, I, I cannot tell you how many times lately I have been in stores and I just have to say, Lord, close my ears to this thing. I've had parents stand right there and grab their kids right by the, the front of their shirt, jerk them up and just hatred in their mouth, saying, I've told you for the last time, if you do that again, I'll beat you. <laughs> Push the kid back and the kid turns right around and goes over again. Don't do that. What did I just say to you? What did I just say? Won't you listen to me? I just told you something. Do you do that again? Now you see what happens. Turn the kid loose. He goes over and does it again. They say, you just wait till we get out of here. The kid just kind of grins. He knows what's going to happen. He's going to get in the car. It's going to be over with. Let it happen. You know how I know that? Because if it didn't happen that way, he wouldn't be doing it the way he's doing it. We as parents can instill the principle, godly principles in our children by operating the way God operates. We instill a healthy fear of punishment when willful disobedience comes. Now, I'm not talking about ignorant disobedience. My children did things from time to time. I said, honey, I know you didn't understand that. Now, let me explain this to you. That was wrong, and here's why it was wrong. Jeffrey came home one time with some words, and he popped off a word in the house. I said, what? What did you say? He looked at me like, whoa, I must have done something wrong. I said, what word did you just say? And when he said it again, I said, what does that mean? I don't know. Where did you hear it? I heard it in school. Well, do you know what it means? No. Well, honey, that means something very bad. And you should never say something like that. When you hear some boy say that, you should say, that's naughty. You shouldn't say something like that. But hey, don't ever say that again now because that's nasty. If that was my little boy that you heard at school say that and I heard him say that, I'd wash his mouth out with soap. So he'd never want to do that again. He didn't get punished. He didn't know what he was talking about. He just heard something that sounded good, sounded cool. I would have popped. I remember when I was in school as a young kid, I'd hear words and I'd come home and I'd try them out and I'd say, Woo, that sounds pretty good. I'll try that again, you know. But you have to teach by principle in order that children. It says now, we want to teach the parents so that the parents can teach the children to have the fear of the Lord in their heart. And if you and I don't operate the way God operates, the children are not going to have any fear in their heart. Don't ever, ever lie to your children. If you've said it once, it does not bear repeating. In fact, I used to say, hey, look at my face. Look at me. Look right here at Daddy. I'm going to tell you something. You listen closely. Now, that is not to be done again. Do you understand me? Don't you do that again. If you do, I'll have to thank you. That's wrong. You understand that? Say, I comprehend. <laughs> I remember a little old Jeffrey. I comprehend. He could hardly say the word. You understand that now? You got that clear. What will happen if you do it again? Just thank you. Okay, honey, you understand that now. No more. Still remember the time when I told him never go over by the river and swing on that tire swing. Never. Don't you, don't let you let me catch you over there by a swing. You understand that? That's off limits. <laughs> and the neighbor kids talked him into it. And Jody went, and Jeff, of course, wherever Jody went, Jeff went. And I looked all around the yard and I couldn't see them. And just like bing, 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 I walked across the street and over down the backyard and I looked way down. They were about, oh, about a city block down. And Jody was just swinging out way out over the river. And she looked and saw me as she was right at the very height. And it looked like she wanted to dissolve right there and drop into that river. She said she really thought about letting go and going right down the river when she saw me. The fear of her daddy came upon her. 
And I just stood there like this and just waited for them to get off the swing. And you never saw two kids walk with smaller steps in your whole life. They little itty-bitty slow steps coming, and I just stood there and waited for them. And then when they got there, I said, what did I tell you about that swing? You know how they go. And I said, no, 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 too late for that. Too late for that. I want you to tell me what I told you about that swing. I said, no, no, if you do that some more, you'll get it worse than ever. I want you to tell me what I told you. What am I doing? I'm trying to instill that I mean what I say. And they finally told me, you told us not to be on that swing. And why were you on that swing? I don't know. No, no, you know why you were on that swing. You chose to disobey Daddy, didn't you? Not really, Daddy. Yes, you chose to disobey Daddy. But I told you very clearly you weren't to be on that swing. You know, I see what I'm doing. I try to let them know this was not something that was in ignorance. This was not something that you just forgot because you clearly understood and I told you very clearly exactly what was involved. Now, I said, what do I have to do? You have to spank us. I said, why do I have to spank you? Because you won't lie to us. What was that doing? It was establishing something that they knew that I meant what I said and said what I meant. And I said, let's go home. They're off the headed for home and they knew exactly what they got when they got there and they got it. And afterwards... Jody ran and threw her arms around my neck and said, Daddy, I'm awfully sorry. Will you please forgive me? I won't do that anymore. I mean, she didn't hate me. She knew we had an understanding. She knew exactly what she needed. She got it. But the next time anybody talked to her about a swing, there was no desire whatsoever to go over in that swing anymore. A principle had been established there. That's what we're talking about here. The non-optional. That was not an optional thing. If you want to go over there, I mean, if it looks good and the sky is clear and there's no clouds, and you can go over there. No, don't go near that swing. You see, it was so dangerous. Here, these little tiny kids like Jeff, he had gotten that wheel and gone clear out swinging way out over the Mississippi River and slipped and fallen. He'd have plunged into that thing and the current would have carried him away and never seen him again. And these kids were all just, you know, getting on, just going wild to that swing and I didn't want them near there. Non-optionals. Now, God has some non-optionals in the Word of God. But children will not learn how to operate by those non-optionals unless they learn how to operate by non-optional requirements at home. The fear of the Lord is learned by relating the reproofs of life to the violation of principle. They went over to the swing. That was a violation of a principle. And there was a reproof. An absolute, sure, unquestioning, definite reproof that came when it happened. And that's the way we learn in life. There are some basic life principles that Bill Gothard brings out even in the basic seminar. And the first one is the basic life principle of design. The fear of the Lord as it relates to design is recognizing that he has specific purposes for each thing which he has made and honoring those purposes. The fear of the Lord involves the awareness that if we violate his design, there will be serious consequences. If we violate God's design for money, we'll have financial bondage. How many of you know that's true? If you violate what God has established as biblical principles, you'll be in financial bondage. If you violate his purposes for marriage, you'll have disillusionment and divorce. I just spoke to someone this week and they said, well, what am I going to do? My daughter right now is trying to do everything she can to pull that marriage back together, but he's just not interested. He doesn't want the responsibility. He doesn't want any of the problems. I said, well, first of all, let me ask you something. Uh, was her present husband, was he a born-again Christian when she married him? Well, she said he was. I said, now, come on. Now, don't beg the issue. You mean you lived around him, you saw him all the time, and you had to depend upon what she said as to whether he was a Christian or not? She says, well, the second thing is, she says, I couldn't have stopped her if I wanted to because she was determined she was going to marry him. I said, okay, now there's the key. This was a marriage that was born out of rebellion. And the fruit of rebellion is always bitter. She, at any cost, was going to get that guy. And let me say this just as hard as I can say it. God pity the parents that think there's something worse than not being married. They are sick. They go around and pressuring and pushing and shoving and trying to, under any cost, just get their daughter or get their son married. There's something wrong there. God can do anything. He can move heaven and earth if he wants to to bring the right one to those persons that they will believe God for. But I have seen so many disasters where they've been sent out and felt like they're less than a person and they've got to compromise and everything else just to satisfy their parents to get married. God help us. I'm for marriage. You know I'm for marriage and families, but I'm sure not for sending kids off and trying to get them to find someone somewhere. I'll tell you again, I went all the way to Minnesota and my wife came all the way from Kentucky and God brought us together. He could have brought her to Nebraska or me to Kentucky if he had to to get us together. He got Mary and Joseph together. He can get them together. 
when he wants to in his own time. If we reject his design in bearing children, we will have abortion and future loneliness, and guilt, and shame. If we despise any of the ten unchangeables in our lives, we will have a deep, low self-image and feelings of inferiority. But they were good. As, in fact, that's when I was at the seminar, and I think Beverly was sick at that time. One of the unchangeables was death. And I had to acknowledge at that time, Lord, I realized that death is none. Everybody is going to die sooner or later. God knows when. That's something you, you can't get mad at God for. It. It's an unchangeable. No one yet has lived forever except Jesus here on earth in the physical body. No one has lived on earth that long. The first step of applying the principle of design is to accept yourself as you really are. I hear people saying, I wish that uh, uh, my hips were smaller, my shoulders were bigger, my bust line was bigger my or smaller, my waist was smaller, or I wish my muscles were bigger, and I wish my nose wasn't so big, I wish my eyes weren't so close together, I wish I had more hair, less hair, longer hair, shorter hair, straighter teeth. And that comes to the place where you say, God, thank you for the way you made me. The most important thing I want to have is peace in my own heart. But you see, we're going to get into problems as far as the fear of the Lord is concerned, when we go around criticizing ourselves for we don't accept ourselves. You know, the most miserable person on the face of the earth and the one who makes everybody else miserable is the person who hates himself. Dr. Stanley was talking this week about that very fact. He says, you can have the most positive circumstance in the world all around you and a person who doesn't like himself can find something wrong with it as big as an elephant right in the middle of it. They're always negative, 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 and it's, it's that self-rejection and self-hatred that's coming out and flying out at everyone else in hopes that somehow they can find some self-worth. You find a lot of people think, well, if I can get a little richer, then, I, then I'll, I'll be happier. If I can get this, if I can gain that, if I can get married. Or I get, no, no, no. You've got to learn how to be happy within yourself and accept yourself for who you are as God made you and be totally content in yourself. Because a husband isn't going to do it for you, a wife isn't going to do it for you, a million dollars isn't going to do it for you, a billion dollars isn't going to do it for you. You've got to come to awareness that God created me just the way I am and I thank Him for it. Does it mean I'm perfect? No. No one is. But it means I'm God's creation and I'll thank Him for what I've got and I'll use everything that He's given me to serve Him the best way I can. Until that happens, you'll never, ever be happy. And you will not be operating in the fear of the Lord if you're criticizing what God created. One more here quickly. And that is authority. The fear of the Lord as it relates to authority is recognizing that God has given power to parents, church leaders, and government officials to carry out His will in the world. If we resist the will of God through these authorities, we'll receive the condemnation of both God and man. Look at Romans, the 13th chapter with me. Now we're talking about three levels of authority here. Parents, church leaders, and government officials. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation or divine judgment. Crema in the Greek, divine judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a deacon or servant. That's what the word is. Minister is that the word is diakonos in the Greek, which means what we get the word deacon from. He is a minister or a servant of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, or servants again, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. The first principle we have to operate by to teach our children is to obey our government. Now, thank God we live in a government where we can influence, in a nation where we can influence our government for good. But once the laws are established, if we cannot agree to them, we need to appeal, first of all. And then if we have to disobey, we have to submit to them. I recognize that you're a minister of God for our good. I feel that I cannot in good conscience obey this law and I will take whatever punishments necessary. And you see, that's where... Passive resistance in the past has helped the government 
to fall. That's when laws are changed, when enough people get excited enough about it that they can have an influence in government to change these laws. The same thing is true in the home. The parents, the children need to know that God's Word says, I have placed the parents there as my authority for good. They are to, responsible for teaching you and training you and bringing you up. And I said the root word for the, for the child is a little tiny baby. That when they used to take the uh, fig and the mother would masticate it, would chew it until it became a, a soft pulp. And she'd take it, put it on her finger and rub it in the roof of the mouth of the baby to teach the baby how to begin sucking. That's the word train up in the Hebrew. Train up a child away. In other words, develop its appetites, develop its taste, develop its abilities and its, its talents in the way it should go, according to his bent. Put all those talents in the service of the Lord. And when they grow whiskers, they won't depart from it. That becomes the responsibility of the parents. Then it becomes the responsibility of the parents to see to it that they do it. You know as well as I do that in a good society, if I go down the street with a ball bat and I start knocking out all the windows and the policeman comes along and says, you know, you really shouldn't do that. I say, well, I, okay. And I go around the corner and I start smashing them out and he'll say, look, now, you're going to get me in trouble if you keep this up. And I keep on doing it. Now, pretty soon he's going to say, you know, it's time for me, you and me to go down and see if they've got a room down there at the county jail that, that you can live in for a while. The quicker that judgment comes, the less prone I would be to continue to break windows. You know what I mean? If the first one I broke, they said, buddy, you did it. Now you're going to go to jail and you're going to pay for this. Same principle applies where children have to recognize spiritual authority and learn to fear God. Now, another area where it's almost destitute today is in the area of spiritual authority. Hebrews, the 13th chapter, verses 7 and 17, talk about following the leader's faith, those in spiritual leadership. Talks about that they have to answer for our soul. But you know, there are many people today that are Christians, if they're ever crossed, and I've had it right in this, in this particular ministry, there have been people that have come and said, I'm submitted to this ministry, blah, 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 blah. And the minute I saw something that was out of line spiritually, they said, this needs to be dealt with. I've literally had them slam the receiver down in my ear, snort through that door, sit down, not even look at me, not talk to me, and yeah. I said, boy, if that's a lamb, it's got the biggest horns I've ever seen on it. As long as everything goes their way, fine. You, you want to find out what a lamb is? It isn't that they go along just when things go their way. They even go along when things don't go their way. They have to say, you know, if God has put them in spiritual authority and given them this responsibility, it's my responsibility to pray for them. Follow them as they follow Christ, but it's my responsibility to pray for them because they have to answer for my soul. And again, I say... I wouldn't want to be a government official today because of all the pressures that come to them from every different direction. I wouldn't want the position. I wouldn't want the position of a lot of parents today because of the pressures that's being put on them. If you happen to strike a child, even though the scripture says that you should lay a rod to their back to drive out rebellion, and you bruise them, and some teacher sees it, she's required by law to call the HRS and have them come out and take your children away from them. Tremendous pressures, but we still have a responsibility before God. And I'd just as soon not have to be in a position of authority. The Word of God says, to whom much is given, much is required. But you see, these are non-optional principles in God's Word. We submit to government. Children submit to their parents. Wives submit to their husbands. Christians submit to those that are in spiritual authority. And that's why I said the other night to this group down there, you better make sure as a sheep that your spiritual authority is operating according to Timothy and Titus. Because if he's not, then he's not qualified to do and lead as God wants him to lead. And they looked at me like they had never heard such a thing before in their life. I said, why do you think that's written there? That wasn't written there for the preachers to say, well, let's keep that hidden from the congregation. That was written for the sheep to know who they could follow. On the other hand, if we violate God's will by obeying unscriptural commands, we will also receive condemnation. It is therefore essential that we learn the will of God through Scripture and make wise appeals to any authority who would ask us to violate it. It is only on this basis that we will have proper submission. Someone asked me some time ago, well, what would I do, Pastor, if my husband ever got to the place where he wouldn't want to go to church? And he told me I couldn't go to church. I said, first of all, you'd have to appeal to him. You'd have to say, based upon the Word of God, it tells me I'm not to forsake the assembling of myself together as the manner of some is. And I don't want to forsake. I love you very dearly and I want to do everything I can to please you. Is there something that I can do, work out with you, be you, with you at another time or whatever, so that I can still fellowship the church? I said, if it comes to a place where he finally says, no, absolutely, you cannot go to church. 
then you have to decide whether you're going to obey God or you're going to obey man. Who was that plumber over in England? Smith Wigglesworth? A plumber? His wife was a godly woman, wanted to go to church, and she submitted to him. She said, I, I want to go to church. I want you to go to church with me, honey. Let's go to church together. They went for a long time. Finally, he got upset about something, wouldn't go back to church, and told her she couldn't. And she said, honey, I'll do anything I possibly can, but I've got to go to church. God told me I'm to, not to forsake that fellowship, and I'm supposed to be there. I'm supposed to learn and study. I'm submitted to the ministry that's there. And he said, you do. You go out that door. You'll never be able to come back in this house. I'll lock you out. He took her shoes and hid them. She put on an old pair of overshoes and went to church that night. She got home after the evening service and all the doors were locked and it was cold outside. She wrapped her coat around the best she could and sat against the kitchen door, up against the kitchen door, and just huddled up there and slept there all night. In the morning he got up, looked out and saw her there, unlocked the door and went back in the house. She got up, walked in, took her overshoes off, coat off, went in the kitchen, fixed him the finest breakfast she had ever fixed him, put it on the table and said, Honey, your breakfast is ready. He came in and started eating, and she just talked, acted as though nothing happened. He broke down and began to weep and sob before God. The Holy Spirit convicted him of it. Now, she could have stayed at home and said, well, I've got to submit to this situation. You know, there's one thing higher when we appeal to those that are in authority, and that is God's non-optional principle. The Scripture says that we're to fear God, not man. And then we've got to believe God. I mean, that woman, I believe, if he would have beaten her up that next morning, she would have patched up the, the bruises and gone on to church on Wednesday night. She was committed to do the will of God at any cost. And the end result was that he became a mighty powerhouse for God because God spoke to him through her disobedience to him. He recognized that she feared God and put God first in her life. You know, there's a lot of homes where our loved ones need to see that, that God is first in our lives. Non-optional principles. Fear of the Lord. Some people say, I want to succeed. I want to be successful. We've learned on Sundays in the series I've been in that if we add to our faith virtue and virtue, knowledge and knowledge, patience and temperance and, and patience, godliness and godliness, love, that if these things be in us and abound, that we'll not fail in anything we attempt to do. I, I want to relate that back to the message that I preached some years ago on the renewing of the mind. The two go hand in hand so beautifully. It says that this is what you think about, and when you think about that, this will be the end result over here, and consequently you won't fail in anything. But one of the great problems is that there is a lack today of a fear of the Lord. Brother Ward, C.M. Ward, who has been a leader of the Assemblies of God Church for many years, was on TBN the other night, Trinity Broadcast out in California, and they were asking him what he saw was going to be necessary to restore the, the church to what it ought to be as far as building the family. And I sat there and said, Amen, bless God, God's spoken to me the same thing. And he said one of the greatest problems, and he said especially in the Pentecostal charismatic movement today, is that children are treated as though they are unnecessary in most of the churches. He said, they'll bring the children to church and put them over in a side room and have babysitters and they'll say, now you paint pictures and color pictures and, and uh, build, use the building blocks or we'll have a film for you or we'll have games for you while we adults go and worship the Lord. And he said, one of the greatest truths that needs to be imparted to the church today is what was taught in the Old Testament. It said that you parents, when you lie down at night, when you rise up in the daytime and when you walk in the way and you sit down to eat, you impress upon your children the laws and commandments of the Lord. He says the children need to be in the services at the youngest possible age to be able to experience the presence of the Spirit of God in convicting power on their parents and those that they know around about them who are adults around them. He said until they become acquainted, if they're over there all the time when God's pouring out His Spirit, they're going to grow up not aware of how God can move on the hearts and lives of people. Secondly, they need to hear the teaching of the Word of God even if they don't understand it all because the hearing of the Word will bring the fear of the Lord. I thought, boy, that's beautiful. And I know it's a lot more convenient, a lot more exciting if we can have all of our children out of the way so we can do our own thing. But we're missing something there. and Our children are missing a very vital aspect of watching us how we worship the Lord and becoming involved. But the fear of the Lord... And the reason it's so important, I said, is because of what Proverbs 22.4 had said. 
I had a, a good experience today. I called the uh, travel agency to find out about flights to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and the lady on there had said that she had been attending the Episcopal Church right here in town that's meeting at City Hall, but they moved to Deltona, and now they're attending an Alliance Church. And she said, the thing my husband can't get over, he says it's a Bible-flipping church. I kind of smiled because what they mean is he's having the pastor saying, now turn over to such and such and turn over to such and such. And what they'd been used to before was the turning the hymnal pages back and forth to this little prayer and to that song and then to this little chant. And then, and she said, but to me it's exciting to get in and find out that God's Word can speak to me. Proverbs 22.4 By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. That verse is so powerful. In other words, if we want honor and riches in this life, if we want these things to be a part of our life, we've got to come to a place of having a fear of the Lord in our heart. And in speaking on this in the past, I told you that, number one, learn the words which God used to describe the fear which we should have for Him. And we said there were terror, fright, dismay, astonishment, trembling, and dread. Now those are the scriptural words that are given indicating our attitude toward God. Several places, when God's speaking of places where he had to judge the people, he said there was no fear of God in their heart. Scripture gives us all these definitions of what it means to have fear of the Lord. Secondly, consider how small we are in comparison to other things which God has made. Now, there's two reasons for that. First of all, you begin to realize the awesomeness of God himself. I mean, he is so magnificent, he is so powerful, he is so com complete. Omnipotent is the word, and omniscient are the, the theological words. Omnipotent means all-powerful. There is no power but what he already possesses it. Omniscient means he knows everything. He doesn't have to learn anything. God knows everything, the end from the beginning. The other reason is once we begin to believe and receive that, believe that, then what happens to our problems? When God says the cattle on a thousand hill are mine and all the gold in the earth is mine, the earth is mine and everything therein is mine. I made the galaxies, the heavens, everything. I just spoke it into existence. And then you say, God, what am I going to do about my bills next month? It takes on a totally different light, doesn't it? When you begin, you begin to develop the fear of the Lord because you realize, I mean, I'm talking about the God that made everything that there is. There is nothing but what he made it. And he not only made it, but by the very power of his spoken word, it continues to persist. It's not deteriorating. It's, I mean, the, the stars and the galaxies have been in circular motion all these years and they're not slowing down. We'll send up a, a, a satellite up into the heavens and all of a sudden, a few years later, we hear, look out, here comes a great big satellite burning its way down to earth and hitting up in Alaska or hitting up in Canada or landing out in the ocean. Of course, the scripture says in the last days that men's hearts are going to fail them for fear of that which is going to come upon the earth. We, we have no idea of just how to apply that. But the fear of the Lord comes when we begin to realize how magnificent he really is. Thirdly, revere the universal, non-optional principles of God's word. You hold in high esteem the universal, those things that apply to all mankind. Not, what does non-optional mean? No choice. You see, there's two things. You can tell someone to do something and they can do it but not revere it. Or they can say, I am more than glad to do it because you told me to do it. And God says we should revere the universal non-optional principles of his word. And by the way, the fear of the Lord, if you want to know how the fear of the Lord operates, read Psalm 51. When David said against thee and the only of us, David began to realize the fear of the Lord when he saw the reproof that God brought upon David for his disobedience. The child died and judgment came on the house of David where all of his children were influenced by his sin. It says the fear of the Lord is learned by relating the reproofs of life to the violation of principle. God gives a principle concerning finances. If we'll revere that, God will bless us in a financial way. If we ignore that, we are the losers. We come into financial bondage. Some have to claim bankruptcy. Others get into horrible circumstances and conditions. When I hear of young couples who have thousand, two thousand dollars a month payments on everything they borrowed for cars, they borrowed for their house, they borrowed for this, they borrowed for that, and all their credit cards is extended to the limit. I think, you know, they're, they're just courting disaster because they're violating God's principle. The borrower is always the servant of the lender. By the way, when a nation turns away from God, that's one of the first signs. God makes them become the servant and he starts letting others 
get the money away from us and we become the debtors. And right now the United States is the largest debtor nation in the world. If you break marriage laws that God's established, the reproof of it will come back upon us and people need to see that and fear the Lord. We break his principles of relation, relating to husband and wife as we ought to. The end result is divorce, breaking up of the homes and our children's lives being totally torn up. If we violate God's principle concerning chastity, we end up with abortion, we end up with loneliness, heartache. Of course, men's idea is birth control. God's idea is what? Self-control. God wants us to have self-control. Now, when you say that to anyone in the world, they literally scoff at you like that is absolutely ridiculous. You know, it's the same response as when you tell them that God does not recognize divorce and God does not recognize remarriage. And if you are living with your second or third wife, that is an adulterous relationship. It's not a legal relationship. They literally laugh and scoff at you today. But it doesn't change God's law. Let me just give you something that really opened my eyes. That, and this is part of Bill Gothard's seminar. The ten unchangeables in your life. But these are the unchangeables that you need to thank the Lord for 